Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 16. Genesis 16, you'll find that on page 13 of your Bibles. As you're turning there, just a little bit of context. In the previous chapter, in chapter 15, uh, the Lord has just made his covenant with his servant, Abram. He has promised that Abram will have a son to be his heir and that the Lord would give him the land. And so we then read in chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing, or the God who sees. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Amen. This is God's word. Congregation Abram, for a man whose name meant exalted father, did not live up to his name. The opening verse of our passage says, his wife Sarai was barren. Imagine the difficulty 
of bearing a name that means exalted father when you have zero children. Imagine Abram in conversation with his neighbor over the fence, as it were. Hey, I'm Abram. Oh, pleasure to meet you, Abram. Exalted father, huh? How many brats you got running around in the house over there? Imagine the sting of that. Not only because of the embarrassment involved, but also because it's a piercing reminder of God's unfulfilled promise of a son, of descendants, of offspring that will inherit the land. He said in Genesis 13 to Abram, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. He said in the previous chapter, your son will be an heir. But we're told, ten years had gone by since Abram and Sarai came into Canaan, the land. Yet, there's no son. There's no offspring. There are no descendants like the dust of the earth. And so you can imagine that every year, every month, every day, is filled with expectation only to be deflated with disappointment. Will God deliver on his promises? That's the question going through their mind as they look at their calendar with black marks on each day. Will God deliver on his promises? He's delivered on the promise of land. They're in the land of Canaan. But will he deliver on the rest, the promise of a son? And congregation, this morning we see Abram and Sarai, God's own people, stuck in a time of waiting, waiting between promise and fulfillment. We see them reach the point of desperation where they're going to seek to bring about the fulfillment themselves rather than waiting upon God. But we're going to see in this passage that the failure of God's people does not stop God's commitment to his promises. Let me repeat that. The failure of God's people does not stop God's commitment to his promises because he's faithful. Now, our passage can be nicely split into two uh, halves. So we're going to look firstly at the first half of this passage and consider human failure and faithlessness. Human failure and faithlessness. And then in the second half, divine mercy and faithfulness. Let's look at these in turn. First, human failure and faithlessness. Our passage opens with a focus, a zoom-in shot of Sarai, Abram's wife. He says, now Sarai. And the focus is on her because in the first half of our passage, she is going to be the main actor. She's dictating what ought to happen. She's making demands of a passive husband, Abram. She's the one who's going to be afflicting her servant, And we're told two things at the outset about Sarai. First, she is childless. 
at 75 years old, Sarai is barren. She's living in the tension between God's promise and reality. And second, she has an Egyptian servant named Hagar, who just might be the key to relieving that tension. And what Sarah is about to do next is fundamentally an act of faithlessness. It's sin. Let's be clear about this. It's sin. But before you give her a hard time, just pause and think, how easy would it be for us to wait over 10 years for God to fulfill a promise that he himself directly revealed to this couple? How difficult is it for us to wait 10 months, 10 days even, for God to deliver on a promise? So while we cannot excuse her for what she's about to do, we can sympathize when she says in verse 2, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, this is not merely a desire for a nice family, for children around the table. It's a desire to bring about the fulfillment of God's promised blessing. She's going to take the initiative. She's going to help God out a little. Do we not have that impulse sometimes? I want to help God out just a little. Give him a nudge. Give him a boost. Do what is expedient and useful. Sarai says, since I can't bear children, let's use the servant, Hagar. Everyone's doing it, she might have said, because in these times, this was a well-known custom. It was socially acceptable, as uncomfortable it is for us. And so Abram and Sarai, God's people, make this plan. It isn't pagans we're talking about. It's God's people. This is us. Verse 3, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And brothers and sisters, I submit to you that this here is a fall narrative of sorts. It's a fall narrative. Why do I say that? Because the words here in verse 3 Mirror the words of Genesis chapter 3, the account of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. It says, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram, just as Eve, you remember, took the forbidden fruit and gave it to Adam. On top of that, end of verse 2 says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And this mirrors exactly what God says to Adam in the garden. You listened to the voice of your wife when she gave the forbidden fruit. And so Abram and Sarai have failed to wait upon God. They have fallen from grace. They haven't been content with his providence, submitted to his timing They have not trusted that God will make good on his promises in his time. 
just as Adam and Eve did. They were not content with God's provision. They did not wait and trust in God, but they trusted in the devil. Congregation, God is never late. But we often feel that way, don't we? We may feel that way, but he is never late, and we are called to trust in him and in his timing. But what does Abram do? He follows through with this scheme, and Hagar conceives. But there are consequences. There are always consequences to faithlessness. Verse 4 tells us, Hagar looked with contempt on her mistress, She now thinks of herself as superior because she's pregnant. She's arrogant. She's insubordinate to her mistress. As Proverbs chapter 30 says, Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up, and the last of these is a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. This household is boiling up with sin. Abram and Sarai, show their faithlessness in what they do with the servant. And then we see the faithlessness of the servant in what she does to her mistress. Every single person is sinning and being sinned against in this household. And what happens next? Sarai becomes jealous. She's indignant, and she blames Abram for the wrong done to her. And it says at the end of verse 6, She dealt harshly with Hagar. She afflicted Hagar. She oppressed her, mistreated her servant. And notice, actually the same word is used, dealt harshly, afflicted. Same word is used to describe the future Egyptian oppression of Abram's children. So do you see the irony here? Later on, The Egyptians under Pharaoh will mistreat the Israelites and they will flee into the wilderness. But what's happening here? An Israelite is mistreating an Egyptian and now she is going to flee into the wilderness. God's people are in the position of oppressing and sinning. And this is what comes of human attempts to bring about what only God can bring about. This is what fleshly thinking, expedient thinking, reaps. These are the consequences of trying to take into our own hands what only God can freely give. And brothers and sisters, we know what this is like, don't we? We feel the temptation, it's always there, to cut corners to do what's expedient and useful for us, for our purposes, cheating just a little to advance your career perhaps, your position in life, because then you'll have influence for the kingdom of God, right? In your parenting, trying to perhaps engineer faith through manipulation or legalism or overbearing rules, We all feel this in our own way, the temptation to cut corners and help God out just a little bit. 
But the ends never justify the means because we don't help God out by our disobedience. In fact, we don't even help him out by our obedience. God does not need our help. He is never late. He is never without a plan. And so faithlessness, sin, fleshly human effort promise much, but they deliver little. They lead only to bitter consequences. And here we see contempt, jealous rivalry, oppression, insubordination, arrogance. A household boiling up with sin. But the story doesn't end here. Praise be to God. In the second half of the passage, we see a picture of divine mercy and faithfulness. And this is our second point. Divine mercy and faithfulness. Verse 7 begins with these words. The angel of the Lord found her, that is Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness. So God condescends in the form of the angel of the Lord for the first time in Genesis to a fleeing Hagar, a foreign Egyptian woman servant of all people. Do you see the humble graciousness of God? He doesn't just happen upon her. No, he finds her. He actively seeks her out in the wilderness. And verse 8 says, He said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? We need to realize that this is the first time someone has called her by name. Throughout this passage, Abram and Sarai refer to her as her, she, or the servant. She's nameless in the household. And yet the Lord calls her by name, Hagar. Because he knows her name. He knows yours. And when she says, I am fleeing from my mistress, in verse 9, the angel of the Lord says to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And now, this can sound, let's admit it, like a cruel command. Right? Do, do you feel the discomfort of those words? Return to your mistress and submit to her? Return to the very one who's oppressing me, the very reason I'm fleeing in the first place and submit to her? In reading this passage, and this verse in particular, we need to look beyond the difficult questions and complex historical questions about surrogacy, about slavery in the Old Testament, servanthood. We need to look beyond the mistreatment and the affliction going on here, pierce through all of that and see that this command from God is a mercy. This is a mercy. Here's why. Because the point is not that God is seeking to send Hagar back into oppression and affliction, but that he's sending her back to the household of blessing. 
Because apart from Abram, God's chosen man, as sinful as he is, apart from him, there is no blessing. The passage says that Hagar was on the way to Shur, which means she's fleeing toward her home in Egypt. Where else would she go, after all? And one writer calls this the Egyptian option. The pathway of compromise and sin, which seems to offer life and freedom. I'm going back to Egypt, but will only result in misery and enslavement. Hagar flees the conflict and humiliation that she faces in Abram's house, but will going back to Egypt really help? Will it really resolve anything for her? The Egyptian option will not work because to abandon the house of Abram, brothers and sisters, is to abandon God's blessing found in him. God has tied his blessing and promise to this man, Abram. And so God, in his mercy, we could call it a strange mercy, sends Hagar back and graciously accompanies her with a divine promise. Verse 10. I will surely multiply your offspring, Hagar, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Don't miss what this means. This means that God is still committed to that promise. Do you remember? The promise of offspring, of descendants to Abraham. And he'll do it through Hagar. But also he extends that promise to Hagar's descendants and they too will be included as Abram's children. Her son Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. He'll be a nomad wandering around in the desert. He'll be hostile with his brothers. And we soon find out in Genesis that he will not be the son of promise. He will not ultimately receive God's salvation. And yet, yet, God promises to give Ishmael great strength and untamed power to make him into a great nation. Why? Because of his connection to Abram, the man of blessing. Because of his connection to Abram through Hagar, his mother, Ishmael will receive outward blessings, which again is a token of God's mercy. He doesn't have to do this for him. And the name Ishmael itself reflects the Lord's mercy because verse 11 says, You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And so Hagar says to the Lord, You are a God of seeing. And she calls the well a name that means well of the living one who sees me. Brothers and sisters, Hagar is someone that we would label an unlikely one, right? She's unlikely to receive God's attention, to receive his favor. She's an Egyptian, a foreigner. She's a servant, only incidentally connected to Abram. But the Lord sees her. 
just as he will see Israel and Egypt and hear their affliction later on. He is the God who sees. And Hagar names him such. The God who sees. And isn't that who he is to you? He's the God who saw you in your sin. He's the God who saw you in the wilderness. When you were running, when you were rebelling, hurting, crying out for help. When you'd been burned once, no twice, by the covenant community, the church, by God's people who should have known better. He's the God who saw you. He's also the God who sees you in the present tense, now, in every moment. He hears you and he has provided for your greatest need in the person of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if God deals graciously with Hagar, Abram's servant, how much more graciously will he deal with us who are not servants, but heirs and children of God through Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham. How much more gracious will he be to us? In your affliction, he sees you, he hears you. Cry out to him in your distress. Cry out to him when you feel the tension of living in that time of waiting between promise and fulfillment. God has given us greater and fuller promises than he did to Abraham. He has promised that Jesus Christ will save us, that he is coming back to vindicate us, that there will be no more evil, no illness, no grief or pain or surgeries or funerals in the life to come. He has promised that he will be God to us and our children and that we will be his people. And when you feel that God is too slow to deliver on his promises, when you feel tempted to help him out a little, to doubt his goodness, to doubt his faithfulness, remember, he knows you. He sees you. He hears you. And he is faithful. How do we know? Because we see him, even here, fulfilling his promise to Abram. He's given him the land, and he will provide him descendants through Hagar. And later on, through Sarah. The Lord shows kindness to Hagar and to Ishmael, in spite of all the human faithlessness that we see here. Every turn is faithlessness. Every turn is sin. Yet God works to fulfill his gracious promises. Because he's faithful. Abram will be made the father of many descendants, as promised. And the covenant will remain standing until it is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ, God's chosen man, the man of blessing, in whom there is ultimate fulfillment of all God's promises, our Lord and Savior, who didn't cut any corners, 
but trusted completely in the Father, even to the point of death on a cursed cross. Just as the failure of Adam and Eve did not stop God's gracious purposes, and just as the sin of wicked men nailing the Son of God to the cross did not stop God's gracious purposes, so to hear the failure of Abram and Sarai, God's people, and the insubordination of Hagar will not stop God's gracious purposes. Because he's faithful. Therefore, congregation, trust in him. Wait upon him, the God who sees, for God is faithful and is never late. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for your faithfulness in spite of the ugly faithlessness of your people. Help us to trust in you when the fulfillment of your good promises seem slow to us, when it seems as though you've forgotten about us. And in your faithfulness, bring all your good promises to pass, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.